0: This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley, a professor of New Testament at Wheaton University, a contributing author at the New York Times, and a canon theologian at the Anglican Church of North America. In this episode, we covered many topics, his new book, Reading While Black, his desire to give his children the gift of joy in a fearful world, and our mutual passion for and delight in gospel music. Esau speaks with conviction and hope about what it means to be a black Christian in America. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will as well. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Dr. McCauley. Why don't you just give us a little introduction to who you are, what you do, and what you're passionate about?
1: Well, I'm an assistant professor of New Testament at wheaton college i'm beginning my second year here i also write some popular um things that you've seen in places like christianity today and washington post i just started a new job where i'm a contributing writer for the new york times so you should see lord willing a monthly column from me there um i studied at saint andrews where you're currently studying Uh under the direction of tom wright Mm -hmm. where i did my dissertation on galatians I'm married with four wonderful children, um, a 12, a 10, a 6, and a 4-year-old. I really enjoy biblical interpretation and um, African-American culture and the African-American church and liturgy. So I think I like a little bit of everything. I kind of have diffuse tastes. So depending on the day, I'm either super liturgical, super black church, super Bible so it depends.
0: I've loved um, seeing your columns in the New York Times. I particularly loved, you had one, um, I think a couple of weeks ago from when we're recording this now about preserving joy and childhood during the pandemic. Yes.
1: So yeah, I wrote that. It's interesting because one of the one of the weird things is that in the past, I used to just write when kind of things struck me. One mm-hmm. of the interesting things about writing is a job, you actually have to have something to say monthly, which is a different feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I just tried to like... In other words be aware be mm. conscious of the world in which I live mm. and think reflect upon the things that I'm seeing mm. and I did I took my son out to to back baseball practice mm. and he had a he had a mask on and mm. all of the kids had masks on and I was I was struck by that 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 contradiction right mm. that we're in the middle of this this really profound life-altering event, mm. but also we have this um this thing that is normal kids playing baseball during the Mm. summer use that as a metaphor to what it's like to be a black parent more broadly Mm. because when you have young black children there is this constant struggle of how much do i let them know about what what the world is going to try to do to them versus Mm. how much do i let them be children Mm. and some parents and this is not i wasn't telling people how to parent i was talking about how i parent Mm -hmm. some people Go very high on making sure their kids are super conscious and super aware of these things, Mm. and I have a bias towards joy. Mm. That I want my children to be children. The world is going to be hard enough, right? Mm. And so I do sometimes filter information out from my children. They don't need to know about every single death that happens in America or or Mm. the latest number on the pandemics. They know that you know America has injustice and those kinds of things, but I do. I want my children to be children as long as they possibly can.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's. Beautiful and so important. I was thinking about it even this morning. I just had coffee with a friend and she told me she's getting married. And I was, it was just this interesting experience of thinking about how I think one of the complicated things about being a person in the world is that you there's never one thing that's true. The world can have yeah. pandemics and injustice and difficulties and in the midst of that, there are still babies and marriages and baptisms and good things. And I think one of the hard things is holding those two things together. Yes. And letting them both be true.
1: See I think I think one of the things that and this is the difference about being it's it's so funny, as an African American parent. I have people, especially my white friends, will say, Hey, I saw this movie and like you should see it. I said, No, no, no. I don't need to see this movie that helps me understand racism. I experience it, right? <laughs> yeah. so I don't need like, and so I actually don't watch all of those movies because I, yeah. I I read the books that the movies came from. Yeah. Oh, my, I have to sit down with my kids, and every kid needs to sit down. I have to sit down and explain to my kids what it's like to be a black kid. I, I was like, you know what? And I'm not saying that's not important pedagogical work. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that a black parent has a different set of issues yeah. that they have to deal with, and so traumatizing my children isn't always the best thing to do yeah. because when, when, when you sit down and have that conversation and talk about, you know, how people experience the police for your children, it might be an abstraction mm-hmm. for my child. It's going it to may they're thinking this could actually be me. Yeah. And so I do, I'm not, I do try to say, you know, it's so like my kids, you know, I probably participate, me and my participated in different kind of events. Mm-hmm. I don't take my kid to every event that I do.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I just want, I want my children to be children as long as possible
0: Yeah.
1: because adulthood is long. It is. It goes on and on and on and on and on. It is.
0: You know, when you look at like childhood development, what is so important is a sense of feeling safe in the world and safe with your family. And if you're giving them that gift. Life is already going to be hard for a long time. It's like I've often thought about in really difficult times. I feel like when you're actually experiencing really difficult things, you don't need to read a book about difficult things because you're already experiencing yeah. it. You need something, something that reminds you there's still beauty and goodness in the world that roots your sense of why injustice is bad and why are these things are wrong. Because you have such a profound rooting in safety and goodness.
1: Yeah, some people are watching like those movies like Outbreak and Pandemic during the middle of a pandemic. I was like, no, I need to read some fiction. I, know. I need to be some like light, like good guy, <laughs> a good girl versus bad guy, bad yeah. girl. You know, this is how it works. I need the hero to win. You know? Yeah. So that's that's what I escaped to I, in the midst of all of this.
0: Absolutely, I love. There's a Chesterton quote where he says, "We read our children fairy tales not to tell them that dragons exist, because everybody already knows dragons exist. If you live in the world very long, you know there's darkness. You read fairy tales to tell them that Saint George can beat the dragon." There we um, go. Yeah, there you go. And I've loved, you've been (laughs) over, I think several months ago, time blends together. You were live tweeting, reading Harry Potter. Was that right?
1: Yes. Everyone's been asking to bring Harry Potter back, but (laughs) I just haven't. It's so weird because that, the Harry Potter live tweet was Mm -hmm. like, I don't know when it was. I I tell people, I can think of things that are pre-COVID, early covid in mid-COVID <laughs> so I think it was like pre to early COVID um, and then like the world kind of like
0: when we were uh, young uh, and innocent and didn't know what to and, live.
1: and so then Ahmed <laughs> Aubrey happened and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and then like the death toll kept rising and at, at that point it started to feel flippant to talk about yeah. like this random book from like you know yeah. 20 years ago I should say random book because if you got Harry Potter fans like here they're gonna be in their feelings I've never read Harry Potter Um, I finished the first book because a lot of friends harassed me to do it Tish Harrison Warren if you all read her book the literature The Ordinary she loves Harry Potter another friend of mine named Emily McGowan who loves Harry Potter and they were just like you have to read it you have to read it I was like okay here it is here's Harry Potter and I was just live tweeting it as if it was like the events were occurring in real time so if people ask me to dig that back up I need to find I need to find my Harry Potter tweets
0: I think my favorite one of yours was when you talked about Malfoy, and you said he's got some work to do on himself, and (laughs) truly, truly, he's so funny. Well, I feel like we should talk about your actual book, um, since that's ostensibly what I invited you here to do. You're coming out with this book, uh, Reading While Black, and my sense is that this is not just a book arguing for something, but a book that also comes from your own personal experience, And that there's kind of a story leading into why you wrote this. So tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, interestingly enough, um, there's a couple of ways to tell that story. Hmm. The first one is to kind of think of my academic journey. Hmm. And I began kind of as a normal biblical scholar, Hmm. you know, with the Greek and the Hebrew and a little bit of German and just wanted to kind of do that work kind of answer these Pauline riddles and these Mm. kinds of things and so that was why I was that was where I was going to do my dissertation Mm. and that was because I've been raised I've been raised with like a love for the scriptures coming out of the black church tradition Mm. but then I got into the academic study of the scripture Mm. and one of the things that happened when I like I I went to seminary because I wanted to like learn all of this stuff and then take that stuff back to the community that shaped me Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I realized that when I got there this is actually true the academy just didn't understand the black church. It was mostly caricature mm-hmm. and stereotype. And they didn't understand like how we read the Bible or why we said the things that we did. Mm-hmm. And so like that was in the back of my mind, even in seminary. But you kind of get caught up in what's in front mm-hmm. of you. And so for a long time, I was just doing regular biblical studies. Mm-hmm. So around 2013, for those of you who kind of have that kind of corporate memory, mm-hmm. was when there was the Trayvon Martin mm-hmm. case. when, um, And they the guy's name was Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And that case kind of kind of it unsettled me and it was at the beginning of my PhD program Hmm. and I was thinking man like I'm about to do this great PhD but nobody that I know from our neighborhood is ever going to read it Hmm. but it was too late so I was doing my dissertation so I went and I just did the dissertation and towards the back end of that dissertation in 2015-2016 was like was kind of like another summer of kind of racial unrest similar to what we're experiencing now Hmm. it was like the first time when I said the technology Mm. Reached the point we expect there to be a video of everything Mm. says video after video after video of african-americans dying Mm. and i said to myself you know what like i can't keep writing books that nobody in my community ever reads and sees Mm. and so reading while black was an attempt to to do two things one was to speak directly to the community Mm. um that raised me Mm. using the bible as this as a source of hope and what i mean is there's a lot of books that exist out there that explain the african-american context to a white audience Mm. what i said i actually wanted to speak to like me at 22 to 23 it's like Mm -hmm. what kind of book would i have needed Mm -hmm. to continue in the faith as a young black seminarian or undergrad Mm -hmm. trying to make sense of what it meant to be christian in america Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. part of the book is like dealing with like my own spiritual journey Mm-hmm. while at the same time mixing it with like legitimate biblical, biblical scholarship. One of the other things that happens is like, there, there's like these really, really academic books or popular books. Mm-hmm. But I'm a, pre, I'm a priest and I'm an academic. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to something that was, that was both academically thick, mm-hmm. right, that wasn't just like kind of Bible verses out of context mm-hmm. but it was also accessible to the people. Mm-hmm. And so Read My Black kinda comes out of that. And there was this one thing that I remember seeing it on television somewhere. Mm-hmm they were interviewing someone during a protest. And I remember them saying distinctly, this is not your mama's civil rights movement. I was like, man, I I feel like we're losing something, Mm -hmm. like, tremendously valuable Mm -hmm. if we lose the African-American kind of Christian tradition Mm -hmm. of protesting for justice. Mm -hmm. And historically, African-Americans have seen in the practice of Bible reading, Mm -hmm. right, through the process of reading and interpreting, applying these passages, hope to continue in America. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do was present to kind of the next generation of black Christians. Mm-hmm. Here is, like, as best as I can understand it, mm-hmm. the tradition that has been bequeathed to us as it relates to Bible reading. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was like a book that I had to write. You know, mm-hmm. when you do a dissertation, I call it like, it's a ticket to the party, right? Mm-hmm. You do a PhD, you got to write a dissertation. And this is like the, the, the ticket to get you into the door mm-hmm. once I was in the room I said now I get to do what I want to do mm-hmm. and what I wanted to do was write things that mattered to me and it wasn't just actually like the like what became this I'm holding the book for the people who can't see it it's not just the book itself it's the whole it's my whole writing career that's mm-hmm. outside of the academy right they tell you like mm-hmm. you know you should write serious peer-reviewed journals and you know get these but nobody reads peer-reviewed journals no but you know what? I need to write. I need to get to the people. Yeah. And so what began, and I had started like my own blog, and then from there it was the Christian. It was this place called the Living Church, mm-hmm. and then after that it was Christianity Today, and then it was the Washington Post, and then it was the New York Times. Because I was trying to say, how do I speak as a Christian mm-hmm. about the issues that are facing people? And so reading while Black, in some sense, is um a a. A fulfillment I call it a fulfillment of a trust, mm-hmm. right? I was given this gift as a kid of mm-hmm. uh, uh, the faith of African-Americans who, despite all of the things that they've experienced in this country, oftentimes done to them by Christians. Mm-hmm. They maintain their faith in God. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, how can I give the best of that tradition to another generation of people? And how can I give professors and mm-hmm. um, college students access to this material yeah it's really what i was trying to do in the book is capture a vibe right this wasn't this isn't like in the same way that it's like a um kind of an analysis of all of the like african-american theologians and, and academics in print mm. it's their scholarship is this wasn't strictly just a book into interge- trying to engage in the black academia he was mm. trying to articulate an ethos mm. that just in the ecclesial spaces in actual mm. churches and so for people who don't attend those churches, this is kind of at least what I think a first point of entry into kind of what that spirituality looks like.
0: I feel like people write their best works when they're writing what they needed, you know, at a different yes. point.
1: The book is for me. If y'all like, I was telling people, I don't know whether or not you're going to like the book. I mean, to be honest, that's not my, that's not my job. Yeah. I'm telling you, there's nothing else like it.
0: Yeah.
1: Because yeah. there was nobody, when, when I, and, and the reason I can say there's nothing else like it is because I was looking for it. hmm I was looking for it yeah and I couldn't find it I couldn't yeah. find it anywhere and so I said I said so you know what I'm gonna write the book that, that like I feel like it's missing in the culture mm. and so it is and now it doesn't mean that the book is good it doesn't mean that the book is gonna change your life I'm just saying this is the book that I wanted to write yeah. and I really with a particular audience in mind mm. I had a we, we had our we have our launch team mm-hmm. uh, meeting And there was was this older black woman, not older, I shouldn't call her older. She's like (laughs) older than me, but not old. She's not old by any stretch of imagination. Um, And she said, man, this book puts so many things that I always felt in print. Mm. I was like, that's it. That's it. That's what I wanted people to be able to see. And so, yeah, I I wanted it to be, I wanted people to be able to, I think I succeeded if people, if African-American Christians see themselves in the text, because a good sermon does that, right? There's yeah. two types. of difference. There's the sermon that like challenges you, mm-hmm. right? Where it's just like, I need to live this way. But sometimes we come to the church and and we're trying to figure out how can I be Christian for another week? Mm. How do I make sense of this thing that I know is true as a Christian, but I can't put words to it? Yeah. And the pastor gives you words to articulate your deepest longing.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And the pastor's job sometimes isn't just to rebuke the people, but to speak to speak with the Holy Spirit is say into the community. And so what I was trying to do is put my finger right in the middle of kind of what I think God have been has been doing in mm. and through African-American churches.
0: I think one of the things I love about how you're articulating this is that for you, scripture, approaching scripture is not just looking at it for what it means, although, of course, you're a New Testament scholar, so that's important to you. But it's also for what it does, what it makes available for people. And yes. I love this. I can't remember the exact quote, but I was really struck by, I think a few months ago, one of your articles, you said that there is this kind of miraculous thing that happens or that has happened in the African American church in America, where when you read scripture, it was this insistence on the humanity and the dignity and the sense that God is doing something that persists in America. And that that's not just, you're just getting a message. It's that it's making something possible. It's doing something for people. And that's what you're trying to get at is this is an exercise in hope.
1: Yes. I mean, if people would buy a book called An Exercise in Hope, that's probably what it would have been like that. Yeah. The subtitle is the book, yeah. African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, like the process. And so and, and what, I think what you're talking about is what I said. And this is actually true. African-American Christians saved Christian anthropology. If you go, it's, it's a fact. If you yeah. go back and look. They had a distorted understanding of what a person was arising yeah. from kind of white theological reflections, where they created hierarchy, where where white people at the top and every other ethnic group were striving towards that full humanity located in, kind, and so black people could be enslaved because they were less human. Mm. And so We tend to believe that people were just like reading and, and interpreting the Bible incorrectly. It's not that simple. Mm-hmm. It was an anthropology. It was a heresy. Yeah, and Christian, and then the black Christians got the Bible and said, "Hold on, mm-hmm. the Bible says here that we're all made in God's image." The Bible says here, this they had the King James at the time. So, um, and you can find this if you go into the African American um slave narratives and conversion mm-hmm. narratives. You see them quoting um, Acts seventeen twenty six over and over again. From one blood he made all mankind who to dwell upon the face of the earth, and they said, mm-hmm. "Well, hold on." If, you, if it says here that we're all from the same blood, and it says in Genesis that we're all created in God's image, then what you're saying about black persons is wrong. Mm. They they snatched anthropology mm. from the racists using the Bible. Yeah. And because they knew that the Bible said that they were children of God, they demanded their rights. It gave them hope. Yeah. Because they said that God isn't. See, they're, they're, I talk about this in the book. There's this, like, you know, in catechisms when they would have mm-hmm. to instruct. The people to bat- to get them baptized. Mm-hmm. The slave master had one that they would give to the slave. Mm-hmm. And it says you do not desire baptism out of any desire to free yourself, but only to accept you know, the place that you know you've been given to you the master's placed under you. It says, Yes, I'm gonna kinda get baptized and stay a slave. Uh-huh. But then then the 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 slave actually gets the Bible and says, well, Hold on. Mm-hmm. The Bible says all of these things that can't treat me this way. There's a reason, and i and I'll leave it alone. There's mm-hmm. a reason that and people, they, they said that when they gave the, the slave Bible, the slave Bible that was mm-hmm. given to them, had 60% of the Bible removed from it. Mm-hmm. They didn't just take, I, this is what I want people to understand. And this I can show you that they knew I, that they were doing something like it. They didn't just take out like First Timothy chapter 6, Slaves to to Him. They didn't just take out like a couple of verses. Mm-hmm. They said there's 60% of this book that is dangerous for a slave to read. That's an implicit testimony saying they knew. If they give, if they give us these texts, right? It's radical. You know, the Levit- Leviticus got to go. I mean, Exodus has got to go. Yeah. The, the prophets, they got to go. Jesus's messages, they got to go. You know. <laughs> so yeah. The problem. So what I'm saying is, they knew
0: the radical power of te- Scripture that it was going to do something.
1: Well, I did, the reason they didn't let slaves read. Was because they didn't want them to have access to the Bible The reason that they went and preached these same Two or three Pauline texts Instead of the whole witness The, the whole testimony of God Because they knew that it would be hard to convince people And this, this is the last thing I say Slave masters knew Slave masters knew mm-hmm. Or at least they believed right, mm-hmm. That these first Timothy passages didn't apply to them mm-hmm. right? They, they, they believed that you know their wives And their daughters and their sons Shouldn't be enslaved But it did apply to black people and it applied to black people only in so much as they did two things. They kept the scriptures for it. They kept the scriptures from them hmm. and they created false anthropology hmm. and the scriptures, that the black people wrestled from them, gave them back, gave them back both. And so what I tried to do in reading while black is to talk about how this practice, how, how African-Americans began to read the Bible in this way. Hmm. And one thing I'll say is that when people hear about that, hmm. they often kind of say, well, what does it mean to read the Bible while black? How could, you know, I don't, How can you read with racial lens? You know, are you distorting the text? I say, well, no, like everybody does this. And this is what I mean. Yeah. If you have 15 single women (laughs) who you're going to go and give a talk to, Mm -hmm. you're going to give a different talk than if you're giving it to like eight year old kids or Mm -hmm. a bunch of people who are near the end of their lives. Mm. So we're always bringing the text to say, OK, given what I know of the audience, Mm. how did this passage speak to them? Yeah. the better the preacher is like I'm telling you this as a male preacher Hmm. I have to work very hard to say how can I speak to like a single mom in the congregation because I'm not a woman and I'm not a mother Hmm. or how can I speak to like a newly married couple when I've been married for 15 years Hmm. so I'm always having to think through how do I enter the narrative world Hmm. of people who I'm trying to communicate to Hmm. The thing that is rare is people are rarely trying to enter the narrative world of African Americans. Yes. And yes. say, How is this text actually impacting the lived experience of African Americans who experience the constant impression that African African-American, Americans African Americans experience? And so most of the biblical scholarship that I encountered never asked that question. Hmm. I would read commentaries and the commentaries are always applying kind of the truths of the scriptures to Basically a middle class white audience hmm. and so what I wanted to say is that well hold on what happens when we open the Bible and say how does this Bible speak to the experience of the people here I'll tell you something else this is in, you're in Scotland mm-hmm. you can't preach like the same kind of stuff mm-hmm. in Scotland that you can in america because the the people here have a different set of issues there's a different narrative there's a different set of norms and so in a sense you got to think like how can i preach in this context especially when you have a lot of graduate students there mm-hmm. right so like how do i think about what does it mean to communicate effectively to grad students yeah. and so what i what i was trying to do is model and it's the interesting thing about this is Ethnic identity is the only identity That cannot be publicly named In some kind of Christian circles mm. We can have a women's, we have a women's mm-hmm. Bible We can have a children's Bible We can have women's ministry We can have men's ministry We can have ministry to elderly mm. We can have ministry to singles We can have ministries to married people When we say How can we have a Bible study
0: mm. That
1: addresses the felt needs Of mm. Af- uh, 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 people of color then, then we get called Everything but a child of God
0: yeah and you know i think that there's two things happening here one is that you're insisting on like you said looking at an audience saying what what does scripture do for offer this audience it's funny i think even i was talking with my sister she was finishing her her degree um in modern theology while she was pregnant with her second baby and she i remember her saying to me all of this stupid modern theology by Kant, it was written by a whole bunch of single, white, wealthy men. They didn't know what it was like to have a baby, to be like to to understand reciprocation. And all, and so it's not that what they say is I just wrote this actually in an article. It's not that their story is entirely wrong, it's that it's incomplete. And so I think I think what you're saying is, on the one hand, you're reading scripture for an audience that scripture is not publicly read in that way at an academic level for. And that's not altering it. It's not changing it. It's saying this experience matters and it should be read for you. But I think the opposite side of that is also true, which is that in the same way that my sister brings something to her study of modern theology, that's embodied, that talks about, you know, people needing each other that Kant misses. I think that your experience as an American, as an African American in living in church brings something, helps us see and understand scripture in a way that we would not without reading from that position, and that's yeah. and, and I think that's something that people miss sometimes. It's not only about reading and saying how does this apply to your specific experience. It's also saying that if the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, and then then your experience and my experience distinctly will will help us understand Scripture in a new yes. way.
1: So, in the last chapter of the book, well, not the last mm-hmm. chapter, the back end of the um, first chapter, where I begin to lay this out. Is I say that like the point of socially located interpretation is so that we might together discern the mind of Christ. Mm. And so, just as my back, just my experiences, my background give me certain advantages in reading scripture, it also distorts certain things that I might mm. see. Which means I need someone besides me mm-hmm. who can read it. And so, what I'm actually proposing is. We all acknowledge the, the, the influence of our social location on our interpretations, mm-hmm. and together we might discern the mind of Christ. And so that kind of maybe, maybe, maybe this was it. Yeah. Maybe God so constructed society or the world mm-hmm. that we would need one another to, to read the scriptures together yeah. and read it well. And one of the things that's really interesting, you talked about like your sister. Your sister yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> your, your sister was pregnant. Yeah. I understood the incarnation intellectually and, you know, Jesus being a baby and all of that stuff. That was great. But then I saw my wife actually be pregnant Mm -hmm. and I saw like her body change, like your hair Mm -hmm. grows differently. Your hair falls out, like not just like the belly grows, like your actual biology changes. Yeah.
0: Your your hips change, your body adjusts. Yeah. I
1: was like like, and then it 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 helped me understand in a profound way what Mary's yes to God really entailed. Mm -hmm. It was like really saying yes with her body. Mm-hmm. And like when you have a baby you're like never and not in a bad way you're like you're like never changed the yeah. never the same mm-hmm. and so like so Mary as like this image of like complete devotion to God after i have actually seen a pregnancy mm-hmm. helped me understand the incarnation mm-hmm. better and more fully yeah and I, I just and just think about how the most profound act in human history the like incarnation
0: mm-hmm
1: it's both is at the same time the most accessible event Mm -hmm. in human history right giving birth to a child something Mm -hmm. that every single woman has like or every human being is the result of a birth
0: yeah
1: right and so and 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 many women would experience birds or at least or at least be um be influenced by them and so one of the what i'm saying though is that like that means having a woman reflect on the incarnation on the other side of her, or even having like that sense of like, mater- all of that stuff is important. Yeah. And so what I wanted to say is that like, I can't, I can, I can get even closer having been a father, yeah. but I think that a, a woman might be able to talk about what marriage yes meant yeah. in ways that like I couldn't fully touch.
0: Yeah. But I think that's a perfect example of that. Our, our limitations, our distinct perspectives actually offers something to the reading yes. of scripture. It makes it makes it doesn't relativize it. It gives a new clearer image of of what's yes. happening. And I love uh I just am finishing a book club over the summer just for fun on Madeline Lingle's um Wrinkle in Time and she has this word that she talks about the incarnation. She says it's the scandal of particularity yes. that God chose to be Revealed to us in this particular context with particular people and that he continues to reveal himself to us in our own scandalous particularity and that we actually need other people's understandings.
1: And this is like one more thing. I think the reason that we have to have like the authority of scripture in our social location and intentional like real conversation is this. Mm -hmm we can talk about like our social location influencing our readings. Mm. But the thing that actually creates the community that makes Mm -hmm. it possible for communion across difference is that we're able to actually speak. There's actually some standard by which we judge these things. If it's just my experience and your experience and someone else's experience, we're kind of isolated in community. But, but, and so we're just all protecting each other's experiences. Mm -hmm. But it's the scripture as kind of God's word to us for our good that allows me to say, it allows me to have real communication because I can never speak about your experience, right? I can't mm-hmm. say that your experience is invalid, mm-hmm. so there has to be some way of kind of assessing these things. Yeah. And so, I, I, what, I, what I talk about then is that we're all motivated by our experiences. We always bring we always mm-hmm. bring those experiences to the text. But I think it's always important for us to let the text speak back to us. Mm. So that our, our, the text gives us the frame within which to understand those experiences mm. and to make sense of those and to unite all of those experiences into this kind of shared tap- tapestry of what God mm. wants to do in the world. Okay, now I feel satisfied.
0: Very <laughs> good. I, wonderful. Wonderful. And I think... Again, you have that emphasis on the power of Scripture, that it's grounding community, that it was so powerful in, in slaves in America for recognizing and kind of revolutionizing uh, their recognition of dignity and their insistence upon that. And I think, I think that's what I've loved is I just love seeing your passion for the way that Scripture both speaks to our experience, how our experiences can illuminate parts of Scripture, but then it grounds us in community, which I feel like is one of the... One of the great dangers of right now is just this continuing fracturing of an inability to enter into other people's stories and picking kind of these, these smaller and smaller cohorts of who I belong to and who I,
1: I want want to write an. I shouldn't tell you what the art. I want to write an article called we hate our new gods that gets to this because we have like this ever shrinking list of people who we think gets it. And in other words, the gets it becomes, um, the gets it becomes us. Yeah. Um, our socio-cultural political consensus around the friends who we who we like and so we just try to find the most fam- famous person who comes closest to that and when that famous person no longer meets that he's, he or she is never sufficiently conscious or un or not conscious enough yeah right we want we want to be able to control control our gods
0: yeah and what a lonely world that is i think that's that's what i've realized is if you're defining your life that way and you're You just end up being increasingly, increasingly isolated, and you kind of, you both try to control, and you kind of become your own god because you are the one who knows most. But I'm, I'm a terrible god. I would get very bored of myself.
1: I'm really, I'm really. I think I would have destroyed the earth like fifteen thousand times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) briefly, how has it been to be thinking about this, be launching this book in the midst of? This season, I mean, this summer has been such a time of unrest and people kind of reckoning with this. And I feel like we've gone through that there was kind of a real moment after George Floyd's death of like trying to to unite around racial issues. And now it's become more and more kind of uh, not as hopeful as that kind of first moment. And so what has it been like for you to be in the midst of this launching this book?
1: Well, it's really interesting because a lot of the issues that were covered in the book that Mm -hmm. are happening now, Mm. We're in the book. So there's there's a book about policing. Mm. There's a book there's I mean there's a chapter about policing. There's a chapter mm. about black rage or anger and injustice. Mm. There's a book about Christian. There's a chapter about Christianity and ethnic identity. Mm. And so in some ways I feel like I didn't understand it at the time, but this is the book that God wanted me to have mm. for the moment. Yeah. And so people ask me like, well, how could you like be able to speak about these topics? Because like, 'Cause I've been working on them for three years. Yeah. And so in some sense it's been really really providential mm. because it allows me to speak to the moment. Mm. But at the same time, it feels a little bit strange because mm. I never want to benefit financially. I mean, you don't make money selling Christian books anyway. So that's, don't <laughs> worry about that. Y'all can buy as many as you want. That's going to get me another turkey sandwich or something. But um, so I, but what I've always tried to be careful to do is to, is to be a faithful witness mm. and not try to use these tragedies to build mm. my own like empire or expand my brand or anything yeah. like that. But to say, how can I speak as clearly and truthfully about what I think God is saying mm. in the present moment? So it's been good for me to kind of, um, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's been good for me to speak into this, mm. even though um, it's been painful. So it's been weird, right? Yeah. And but, you know, so like you have a book that's coming out in the middle of a racial kind of moment where there's a chapter on policing, rage, and ethnic identity in the book. <laughs> uh, um, and there's a book, there's a chapter on the distinctive gifts of the African-American church. Mm. Oh, there's, uh, there's also a book on, a, um, there's also a chapter in the book about a biblical theology of protest. Mm. I mean, so like every chapter about protesting. It's so kind like, of amazing. It's, it's kind of, yeah, so that, there's a chapter on race, there's a chapter on protesting, there's a chapter on, 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 on justice, there's mm. a chapter on, so like basically everything the internet is talking about is in the book. Whether or not you like my answers is a question. Yeah. It's there, so it's been, it's been weird because it feels like, "Oh, what did you say? Let me turn to chapter three. So: um.
0: <laughs> Well, I'm glad it's there, and I'm excited I'm excited to get my copy. What would you uh, I think I'll, I think we're nearing the end of our time, and I don't want to keep you from, from everything. So I want to close with a funny question. Um, one of the things I focus on a lot in this podcast is kind of resourcing people with an arsenal of good stories and music and images that help them live, hopefully and um courageously in our time are there is there any work of art musical literary visual that has been something that's impacted you or helped you live well in the world as we find it
1: well um one of the things i could say two things one i'll say is the artist kirk franklin has Mm. been was someone who just shaped me growing up Mm. so i've been listening to his music my entire life Mm. But I did find in this particular moment, I found myself drawn to like the old gospel music that was also part of my childhood growing up. So Kirk was the revolutionary at the time. Mm. But I found myself turning to people like Shirley Caesar, James Mm. Cleveland, Sean Pace Rhodes. Mm. Uh, There's a song I Don't Feel No Age Tired. Mm. Uh, There's a song called um, God Trying to Tell You Something and um, the movie The Color Purple. So I found myself turning to these old um, black gospel music that has kind of really carried me along. Hmm. The other thing that I would say is that like if you if you do get the book, there's like these snippets that open up every chapter. Um that often kind of come from songs and things that from my childhood and my youth. And that was my that was my attempt to kind of evoke that literary and musical hmm. tradition. Hmm. And so you can see some of that there. I think of like the last the last um kind of opening quote for the chapter. Um, that uh, is Jane is a uh, um, Sam Cook. Mm. Uh, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. Mm. And so, so I would say like what's really been helpful for me is is Kirk Franklin and behind that kind of the tradition of Black gospel music, mm. and then some of the soul music of the '60s and the '70s have been were a tremendous encouragement to me in this season. If you do nothing else, to get like Kirk Franklin. Oh, I
0: know. I Kirk Franklin Save was
1: saving more than life. Saving more than life is mm. the song.
0: Uh, over for some reason over uh, Palm Sunday, I, my brother and I made a playlist of Hosanna songs, and we had Kirk Franklin's. I'm trying to remember. There we it. go. Yeah, it's yes. just it's like a shot of gold into your yeah. into your veins. Yeah. Um, so that has also been one of our favorites around here. Thank you okay. so much. This has been so wonderful. Oh. Uh, I've so enjoyed this conversation, and um, best of luck to you on, on launching this book. And I hope to read more from you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'll come back anytime. Oh, My great. son is begging me to take him to wherever he's going to go. So I got to go, go be a father. Thank you all for listening. Everybody be nice to join the comments. <laughs> a-
0: Amen. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a wonderful day.